Hey guys, the audio on this episode is a little rough. We've made some changes going forward to improve this. The episode is extremely important, so we appreciate you working with us. What we're creating here in New York is not some sort of exclusive New York-only market. We're creating a competitive landscape where people can compete fairly and on a level playing field so that the best brands, the best cannabis wins. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. This week, we've got a very special guest, Damian Fagan, Chief Equity Officer for New York State Cannabis Management. Damian, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, guys. How are you guys doing? I'm doing well. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Really excited to talk to Damien and looking forward to learning as much as we can about the New York cannabis market. I'm doing good. It's really, it's really nice of you to join us from Hawaii. And uh, I guess, Damien, this is really important for the record. Where are you located? Uh, well, I live in Manhattan. I've probably lived in like five different neighborhoods in New York City. I've been here about nine years. So uh, yeah, I'm doing this call from East 66th Street. That gives us another East Coaster, Kellen. So let the record state. So if you can for our listeners, can you give a little background about yourself? Yeah, for sure. I was uh, appointed to the position uh, back in June. Um, prior to that, I've done a lot of different jobs. Uh, but my general background is you know, economic development and international development, primarily with the focus on agriculture. So I spent a lot of time working with farmers, a lot of different uh, crops, but primarily looking at ways to Add revenue generating activities, value added activities uh, for farmers uh, to make more money on their crop, to increase exports, increase yields. And, and so, you know, when I entered the cannabis space, I started looking at it in grad school back in 2015. And it was primarily through that lens that I was looking at cannabis as a commodity crop, a cash crop that held a ton of value in terms of, you know, rural development, economic development, bottom up, inclusive growth, you know, opportunity really. Um, for a lot of low-income communities, not just here in the States, but around the world. Talk to us about your role. How, how did you get involved with the Office of, of Cannabis Management? And was it something that you sought out or something that you always wanted to aspire to? Take us, take us to that. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty unique story, actually. So no, I, I never pursued the position. I didn't really apply for it either. Um, it wasn't on my radar for a long time. I think because I was assuming, you know, the office of cannabis management, you know, the, the folks in Albany, they would, you know, put someone in the position who had 30 years of experience running so-and-so agency or had basically, uh, you know, paid their dues back in Albany to be appointed to this position. I was busy living my, my own life as a cannabis advocate and a nonprofit director in the South Bronx up until about March of this year. I got on a, a radio interview um, with... A couple guys who are, you know, good friends of mine, mentors. They run, they have a radio show in Harlem, Curtis Archer and Bob Ponce. And so they put me on their radio show to talk cannabis. And so we had an hour and a half conversation about where the state was in terms of, you know, rolling out its program and what that meant for, you know, black economic development, black black opportunity, social equity rollout. And that radio interview was heard by the majority leader, Crystal People Stokes, um, who, as you know, many of you guys know, is you know the, the sole and primary driver of the MRTA. And I got a, an invite to come meet her in Albany uh, a week after that. Uh, met with her for you know about ninety minutes. I completely just thought it was an opportunity to kind of share my ideas about what I thought the state could be doing before returning back to my job in the South Bronx and in Brooklyn. Uh, doing workforce development. But uh, I guess, you know, after that conversation, she was thinking differently about my future. And so that's kind of how my name, you know, entered the conversation about the position. You know, that was, it was only about three months after that, where I was finally offered the position. But there was a lot of conversations with Chris and some other folks on the team just to figure out, you know, if it was a good fit, you know, ultimately, like, I just want the program to succeed. And I still feel that way, obviously, but I needed to be certain that I was, you know, the right guy at the time for the role. And and that involved a lot of conversations with Chris and other members of the executive team to really figure out um, what their priorities were, you know, where I was coming from. Uh, Chris obviously needed to get to know me a little bit better, but that's sort of how it happened. There was no, you know, like job application that was sent out. I was doing my thing, talking about, you know, cannabis in New York and what, what, what should happen and the right people heard it. 
really fortunate to have some incredible guests on here. And I think, Damien, that you have the hardest role out of all of them. So take us through what the, the first day on the job is like, right? Like, are you getting up to speed? Are you thinking about plans? Like, take us through those first couple of days as you try to, to get your feet wet in a role that is as challenging as all of them are. I've worked in government before, right? I, I've been in federal government in D.C., which is very different than state government. So I walked into the role without a lot of experience um, in Albany. You know, I'd only been to Albany a few times uh, to advocate around cannabis. So there was just, you know, as you can understand, imagine there's a lot of acronyms I need to learn, a lot of different agencies and their roles I needed to figure out. Uh, I think that the first month was mostly spent talking to, you know, directors from other agencies, you know, directors inside uh, OCM, and really just getting a sense for how uh, New York state government worked. You know, I, I, my first question to Chris is like, can you fire me? <laughs> and he was like, I don't know yet. And so, you know, there's just, there was a lot of questions I had. I mean, I, I, I know what the role is meant for. I know what the role is supposed to do. I know how important the task is, you know, uh, you know, in front of the chief equity officer. But what I didn't understand is the tools that were available to me to implement them. And that's something that I'm still figuring out to this day. And, and yeah, it's a learning process, but I, I bring a lot to the role because I've been in the cannabis space uh, for the last seven years as a small operator, as an advocate, as a nonprofit worker. And so, you know, I, I was already in the community, in the cannabis community in New York, talking to uh, entrepreneurs, um, activists, and others, including elected, elected officials. And so uh, sliding into the role, you know, I had the community, you know, insight. I kind of knew what I envisioned for the role and envisioned for the for the state rollout of the social equity program, and so really, you know, it's been about socializing what I what I wanted to see, you know, as an advocate, as an activist, with what's possible now that I'm in government. And I think that that is something that a lot of folks, you know, there's a lot of tough lessons there. Like you, you, you know, you have all these ideas of how you how you think the government should be implementing certain programs and creating space for the most harmed and being inclusive and equitable. And then, you know, when you get into the spaces where now you're in charge of implementing those programs, you, you find that, you know, there's a lot of obstacles. There's a lot of, there's a lot of realities of, you know, what the government can and can't do that really limit the scope or expand the scope in some cases, but you don't really know what, what's possible until you get into these positions and start talking to the lawyers, really. So you mentioned obstacles, Damien. What um, were some of the major obstacles that you first faced? And were you able to kind of look at some of the other adult rec markets that have tried uh, to implement social equity programs? Have you been able to kind of gather at least some solutions that they have tried to navigate those same obstacles? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the number one thing I can say about me in this position is everything I'm coming up with, everything I'm proposing, everything I'm pushing for internally is the result of years of talking to social equity operators and activists in more mature markets. I got tapped in a few years back with social equity advocates out in California, you know, Michigan, Colorado, and was on basically like weekly calls with a bunch of different groups, you know, learning about their roadblocks, their setbacks, what the state and city and municipalities were doing in their areas that, that was working and that, that wasn't working. And a lot of the advantages that New York has in this position is that hindsight, that benefit of looking at what other states have tried to do and implement and learn from those mistakes. I mean, there, it, 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 it's really granular too. Like I spent uh, a few weeks looking at the Oakland's loan program and trying to understand what went wrong there and, you know, when you dive into it and some of the reports that they release, you, you realize they didn't have enough staff to process all the applications for the loans or for the social equity um, prioritization, you know, applications, whatever. And so there was just a backup of paperwork. Uh, this might have actually been San Francisco, but um, that was, that's just like a human resource management thing that, you know, we can anticipate and solve for. And so I think, you know, to, to our benefit and to the, to the benefit of the social equity applicants in this state is we're not going to make those same mistakes. We're going to use best practices. We're not going to necessarily reinvent the wheel. We're definitely going to try some new things because we owe that to the industry. We owe that experimental experimentation with, with government policy and government intervention in, in this space to see if there aren't better solutions to improving access, making it more inclusive and and readily available to Americans to, to get into the industry. And so we will be, you know, deploying a lot of things that 
have been done in other states, taking into account some of the, the larger or smaller issues that, that held them back from succeeding, and also trying new things. And so that's, that's ultimately where I derive a lot of you know, inspiration and, and insight into the process is, is those more experienced operators in other states. I think those are so important, but I kind of want to stay in the beginning. So let's talk about like your actual role from like a day-to-day standpoint in layman's terms for those who are unfamiliar, let's say with cannabis, you know, can you explain what your role is and, and, and how your, your tasks are handled uh, moving forward and getting the market to open up? Yeah. So, you know, I work, you know, hand in glove with Chris Alexander, our executive director and the cannabis control board and the advisory board to ensure that you know the policies that we're implementing the programs we're launching the regulations we're writing are going to produce equitable outcomes um, you know i uh, have the tough job of you know ensuring that we live up to the high ideals of the MRTA i mean you read that document and you're inspired you know i i read it i was inspired i was like the state's really going to do this and the position the chief equity officer position is really to just uh, as, a, as, a, as not necessarily just a watchdog, but also a, a manager of those programs and those initiatives. And so a big part of my role at the moment um, is ensuring that the regulatory uh, framework that we're going to deploy over the next you know, year creates equitable licensing grants uh, for social equity businesses, uh, low interest loans um, that we're also creating uh, incentives. Because you know, another element of the chief equity officer role is economic development. You know, this is something that is uh, within my team's authority to, to, to work on. And, and, and economic development includes things like, do we, what can we do to incentivize our craft growers to start producer cooperatives to work together to ensure that, you know, craft cultivation is successful in New York State? What are we doing to ensure... Uh, distressed farmers, you know, multi-generational family farms have a chance to, in, you know, incorporate cannabis into their crop rotation uh, to, to, you know, and generate another revenue stream that'll save their farm. There are elements of what we're doing that are, you know, focused on repairing the harm from the war on drugs, which is, you know, central to the MRTA. And there are other elements that are about like, how do we make the $10 billion industry that we're about to, you know, see develop here in New York State as redistributive and widespread as it can be. You know, there's a lot of parts of this state um, here, in, here in the city and throughout central New York and upstate New York that have really seen a lot of economic hardship over the last few decades. And so there's a lot of programs that we're developing and uh, regulations that we're developing to ensure that the money that's generated from this industry and the businesses that are started are located, are geographically diverse, and prioritize, you know, a lot of those groups that have been left behind by, uh, you know, the, the loss of big industry, the loss of manufacturing, and the struggles of some of the organic vegetable farms and the dairy industry. And so it's a big mandate, but we got a big team and we're growing every day. I think one thing that I don't think a lot of people understand is that six months ago, our agency probably had 20 full-time staff for a state of 20 million people. We're now at about 120, 130 full-time staff. And we're scaling up to hopefully in the next six months, about 200. Uh, and so the work that we're doing, I think people can see is accelerating and it'll continue to accelerate as we bring on more staff. And But yeah, that's what my team is focused on. It's equity and economic development uh, across the state. It's a massive challenge. And I think one of the areas that excites me most is that it's not just words. Your team isn't just saying it, but they're actually backing up with, with swift action, which I think is, is one of the big differences we've seen from other states who have, who have made promises in order to, to try to take a different approach. So let's, let's start from the very beginning. Today is September 8th. What is the current status in New York? And then who has a first opportunity to go first? Well, yeah, I mean, so the industry, you know, the first conditional licenses that went out earlier this year were to the conditional uh, hemp farmers, the adult use conditional cultivators. Uh, so right now we're at about maybe 240, 250 uh, conditional cultivators who are harvesting right now. Or, you know, many of them are harvesting over the next month the the first legal cannabis crops in the state. Um, the next round of licensing we authorized were conditional processors who also came out of the hemp program and had been, in many cases, processing CBD uh, and making edibles tinctures uh, in the CBD market over the last five years. 
And so we have about 15 of those licensed now that are working with our AUCCs to, to convert that, that raw material, that biomass in, in most cases into um, edibles and, and beverages and everything else. That are, and then those products uh, will end up on the shelves of our next conditional license, which are the, is the card program. And that's the conditional adult use retail uh, dispensary program that we are launching. That is probably the most innovative approach to social equity licensing and, and um, prioritization of, of people with, you know, individuals with marijuana-related convictions uh, that we've seen in the nation. And so those are the first licenses. These are all conditional licenses. Uh, that isn't to say that they're, they're, they will forever be conditional licenses. They will, these will all be part of our legal uh, adult use supply chain. But that, that's how we decided to, to, to start the industry here in New York. And uh, that is with small family farms, Many of them, uh, and I'll say, and I'll say this because I speak from experience, because I was a hemp farmer in the state of New York. Um, many of the conditional cultivators that we license were, you know, facing some serious, you know, economic challenges, some financial challenges. The hemp market, the CBD market on the East Coast, and probably on the West Coast as well, uh, did not turn out to be, you know, um, the panacea that I think a lot of people thought it would be. And unfortunately, a lot of our farmers got hurt by that and, and, and made big investments that, you know, the, the, the demand couldn't back up. And so bringing them into the adult use market was a priority to ensure that, you know, we didn't, you know, the hemp, the hemp opportunity didn't end up destroying, you know, multiple dozens of family farms, multi-generational family farms. I mean, some of these farms are over 200 years old. They've been in the same family. And so big, a big piece of how we started this industry is, is with this conditional licensing period. And the regulations that are, that, are, that are imminently coming out in this fall uh, will inform the next licensing period, which we hope to make available to all other applicants, social equity and non-social equity, by uh, the middle of next year. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the, the hemp industry. It is, uh, it's been a challenge for everyone in the whole country, I imagine. And so what are some of the, the economic support that you guys are providing some of these farms that are transitioning over to adult use cannabis. Uh, could you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah, well, it's, you know, the benefits that the hemp farmers are seeing is really just the first to, to find out what kind of genetics are, are going to work uh, with outdoor cultivation in New, York, in New York State. And the second is, you know, they're going to be first to market uh, when, the, when, our, when our retail, when our conditional retail stores open up. Um, and they also, you know, the conditional license is a two-year license. So they will also be doing the same thing um, outdoor and in greenhouses next year as well. When you're rolling out the licenses and you're doing it the way you said, where you're you're kind of changing the game and making it go different because it's it's newer, right? A lot of people have said that they're going to put others first, but you're actually backing that up. Was there pushback from other people in the room who are saying other people's opinions, maybe some of the bigger companies who wanted to have opportunities to to be one of the first to enter the market? Absolutely. And it's been challenging to say the least, you know, because we're not trying to shut anyone out of New York State. Like that's, that has never been the intention of the conditional program. I think it's important to understand, like I was saying, six months ago, the, the agency had 20, probably 20 full-time staff. We were in no position to roll out thousands of licenses and open up applications to companies from all over the country. It would it would have been a disaster. But we still recognized, you know, an opportunity to get something going. And, you know, at that state, you know, I, I wasn't on, on the team at that point. I was uh, merely an advocate outside of it, you know, pushing them one way or the other or trying to um, and, and not succeeding. But, uh, you know, yeah, at, at that point, you know, six months ago, the outdoor cultivation season, we have one season in New York um, and, and it was coming up. And, we knew, and I think that there were people at, at OCM who knew they wanted to do this conditional retail um, program. And so the, uh, there was a need to generate some product, some legal product that could stock the shelves by winter. And uh, that's where the hemp program came in. They, were, they had the infrastructure, they had the facilities, the processors had the equipment. Um, it just made sense. And it started the industry off um, in a way that we haven't seen done in any other state with you know small family farms and uh, those most harmed by the war on drugs. And so it's definitely not uh, a perfect uh, um, start, but it is sending a message and it is incorporating a lot of folks right off the bat at the beginning of the industry that are in, in, in every other state have been left behind or have been kept out. And so, you know, this is going to be a, 
no cap market. This is this is not a limited limiting uh, limited licensing market. Um, we're not we're not putting caps on licenses, and we're we're definitely opening it up to big players, small players, and large uh, and medium sized players. Um, but you know, there just there wasn't the capacity at the beginning of this year to to even begin to think about um, managing what that looks like. You know, as far as you know, IT, just the, everything. Just you saw how many applications New Jersey got in the first week of them opening up applications. Like we're scaling up staff in anticipation of a, a similar uh, situation here, and so. Uh, we're in a much better place now and over the next six months to begin, you know, preparing for for the larger rollout uh, of, the, of the industry. When we're talking about thousands of licenses here. Dean, what do you think the timeline is? For timeline? Yeah. The transitioning from what everyone is branding as a limited license state to uh, to kind of this open season, if you will, where anyone can kind of go apply. Yeah. I do want to talk about the timeline a little bit because, you know, I've noticed a lot of people in New York... Um, even, you know, friends of mine, people who've been in the industry for a while and are patiently waiting, um, they've got their properties in mind, they've got their business plan ready, um, and they've been ready for the last six months. And I, I know a ton of incredible legacy operators, farmers, store owners who are um, anxious to, to get into this space. And so, it, you know, when I, when I hear people talking about what's taking so long, it's like, you should have every... And so, you know, every desire for us to take our time with this. Um, I think in state after state, you know, you've seen states, uh, state officials kind of rush through this process and, you know, deputize the medical operators to go first and then open it up to just pro, uh, applicants who are ready to start building out facilities immediately. Um, there's no turning the dial back on that later. You know what I mean? And so the way you start an industry, the way you launch the foundation of, a legal industry that is going to be here for a hundred years is you is you should take your time with it. You want to be intentional and deliberate with every single regulation that you put in place. Like, is this necessary? Is this not necessary? What kind of outcomes will happen if we make this a requirement and not that a requirement? These should these should take time. You know, I, I liken it to you know building a bridge, an infrastructure project. Like that bridge, you want you want that bridge to 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 be there for a hundred years. You have to do a lot of engineering and planning before you start. Um, laying the foundation of it. And, you know, I'm thinking about those operators that are ready to go right now. I think about them a lot, but I'm also thinking about the kid who's in the South Bronx who will, may want to enter the industry five years, 10 years from now. We also want an industry to exist uh, five, 10 years from now that that young entrepreneur can also access. And so, you know, we're not looking at creating a couple hundred millionaires in the next two years. We're looking at building a sustainable, thriving, dynamic, innovative, inclusive and you know representative industry that's going to be here for decades and i just think it's so short-sighted to rush that process legal cannabis is here to stay it'll be nationwide eventually take your time you know this is an important plant like if you really care about cannabis if you really love this plant like a lot of people in this industry do you should really be pushing your legislators and your um, your regulators to to be intentional with this process uh, don't rush it. Don't take side streets or whatever, or cut corners or anything like that. Like, really work on it. Really think about it. Incorporate feedback from stakeholders, the community, activists, the people who have who fought for legalization for decades to get us to this point. Incorporate what they have to say. Incorporate legacy. Talk to talk to the legacy operators, and you know, build something that's here to last, not something that is temporary. I mean, Dana, who's one of those people? So I, I definitely hear you, but I was also under the impression that speed was critical, given all of the other efforts. And I, I've taken a different approach maybe over the last month, where I think recognizing exactly like you said, like doing it right is way more critical than doing it super fast, and then having all these issues where the industry doesn't have the ability to grow the right way over a long time because cannabis is fighting not only stigmas, but various other issues that have, have given it challenges for quite some time. So making sure that the largest market in the entire world is built the correct way is, is incredibly critical. And these steps now your team is taking are, are necessary in doing that. But one of the challenges though with taking your time and doing it the right way are the, the pumping up of the gray market. So how? How does your team balance knowing that there's illegal storefronts that are operating currently, and there's trucks that are all around New York City. So how does your team handle those situations? Yeah, you know, it's it's definitely, uh, I think, a shock to some, not a shock to others. And, you know, the one thing I'll say about the gray market that's popping up, and 
uh, this is this is an important uh, element that that differentiates New York City from a lot of other municipalities and states because uh, we're the size of states, honestly. But you know, New York City is a very expensive city to live in, right? It's always been, you know, for the last twenty years, it's been incredibly difficult uh, for for working class New Yorkers, middle income, middle class New Yorkers to to live here, and to and, you know, seventy five percent of our city rent, and so cannabis, illicit cannabis has always been there as kind of sort of, you know, something that uh, folks can fall back on when they've lost a job or when they've missed a, you know, rent check, they can, they can bring a pack out from California and supplement their income. And so when you see the kind of free for all cannabis gray market, that's kind of popping up right now, there are a lot of, you know, you know what rent right now is for a one bedroom in in Manhattan. It's like $4,000. And so it's very unique to the city too. What, what, what's happening because it's in, in, in most cases these storefronts are being operated by out of state folks who who are you know really just opportunistic cash grab. They they recognize this gray area to make a little bit of money and they are making a lot of money. They're also eating into the revenue of traditional legacy operators who've been here selling cannabis for decades. And so yeah, we recognize that you know this is the result of the delayed rollout of the industry economic conditions that are unique to living in the most expensive city in the country. And also just a, a, an incredible demand for weed. New Yorkers love weed and they also need money. And so they're going to, they're going to, they're going to combine those two. It's a very entrepreneurial city. Um, now I think, you know, we've done a couple actions uh, here in the city and, and across the state with local and uh, state partners. Just yesterday, we, with our partners in, uh, New York City law enforcement, I think, impounded about 19 of those trucks. So, you know, I think we've done that twice now, or we've taken about 20 off the streets. Uh, so 40 total. And, you know, uh, we're, we're going to continue working with our local partners to ensure that, you know, these storefronts are shut down because they are in violation of, 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 of several, you know, tax violations, health code violations. And the, th- the thing is, is that, you know, and, and I, and I want to, you know, really uh, stress this is that there's no return to what happened in New York before. And I don't think a lot of people outside of New York and maybe people who aren't familiar with the East Coast and how law enforcement treated weed for decades, but there's absolutely no returning to the way we handled enforcement of illegal cannabis sales uh, in this city and and, and on on the East Coast. It, It can't ever happen again. And so it's not necessarily about shutting down this gray market and, and, you know, punishing people for, for these violations. It's about creating a legal industry that is accessible and, you know, potentially more lucrative for them to enter. And I I think what we've seen in, in other states that had pretty, you know, significant illicit markets, I think Washington state's a perfect example, their illicit market sort of fades out into the background as they increase the footprint of the legal market. And I expect the same thing to happen in New York. You know, New Yorkers and the tourists who, you know, 60 million tourists that come here every year. And, you know, once we start, you know, opening up uh, the amount of shops that we need to, to really meet demand and those uh, shops are selling top quality, tested, safe products, you're going to see a, a shift away from the illicit market into the legal market. And so that's how we look at it. We don't see it as necessarily an enforcement issue where we need to start punishing people. We see it as we, we need to do better at at lowering the barriers to entry and, and creating that on-ramp for these folks to join the legal industry. I think that was so well said, Damien. And um, excluding California, I would say every state that has launched an adult rec market has seen the gray market just fade into the background for all the points that you just touched on. Um, I do want to kind of change the topic here and kind of bring up the, the fund. What was the idea behind it? Could you kind of walk us through what that fund is, its purpose is? Yeah, so uh, the Social Equity Fund, so this is also predates uh, my, by like six months, but uh, this is the fund, you know, it's got some state money in there, I think 50 million, uh, but it's mostly private, privately raised uh, fund that is going to support uh, the conditional adult use retail dispensaries. You know, I, the, the fund is uh, supposed to grow to be $200 million so we can support the creation and, and establishment of 150 dispensaries across the state. And that money really, you know, is intended to, to, to create these turnkey retail operations uh, that are, you know, justice impacted um, card eligible applicants can kind of just plug in their operations, their brands, their business strategy, what have you into, you know, state of the art turnkey facilities 
that are located in prime areas of the of the city of, of upstate of central New York, Long Island, and so that, that the fund is intended to to, to support that. And um, I know Dasney and uh, has recently voted to finally you know uh, approve the fund, and uh, they're going to be you know uh, going out on the road uh, raising money over the next six months uh, to support that effort. Pretty unprecedented, right? To have a fund like that, and then to to work to help set up these businesses to get them to push off the ground. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a lot of money, and I think that it represents something you know unprecedented in the history of you know drugs and criminal justice in this country. This is you know the state of the, the state of New York. You know that only four years ago, four years ago was throwing kids up against the wall all over the state, uh, patting them down and putting them in the back of a cop car for, you know, carrying a mildly psychoactive plant. You know, that's, that's how far we've come in four years as a state, as a city. And to see the kind of backing that the fund is getting to from our, our representatives in Albany is just so huge. And I love it. I, you know, one part of the reason I took this job, straight up, part of the reason I took this job I heard that announcement. I heard what they were doing with the conditional adult use retail dispensaries. And I was like, oh, okay, these guys aren't just talking a big game. They're, they're going for it. And so that decision to join, join the team was entirely you know, built up around the work that they had already committed to. I saw the vision and I was like, man, these guys are serious. They're putting money up. They're putting... They're, and, and you know what it is? Really, really what it is. They're doing the hard thing. Like, because, you know, the easy thing is to just transition all the medical operators to adult use, let a few other guys in, let them do this vertical integration thing. It's, it's very easy to, to, to be compliant and to, and to enforce all that. And, you know, there's going to be no issues. There's going to be no gray market. There's going to be no... But they chose the other way. They chose the hard way because it's the right way. And, and, I, and I really respect that because it's risky, um, politically risky. You know, uh, it's also risky to some of these operators. You know, we can't expect all of them to, to succeed year one. Uh, and so it was a brave policy decision. Uh, to pursue it. And it really inspired me to join the team. But unfortunately, though, with those policies, you anger some of the bigger players. So from an MSO perspective, uh, I'm just going to quote an article from Cantor Fitzgerald said that multi-state cannabis operators will be required to pay $20 million to help fund a $200 million state fund to help finance the first licenses. Is this the approach that New York thought would best? And is there is there plans in the future to try to adjust it in order to allow some of the bigger operators to come in and help support, let's say, an exploding industry in New York? Yeah, I mean, let me just separate two funds really quick because so the social equity fund for the card recipients is two hundred million dollars. That's unrelated to this twenty million dollar fee or whatever that is uh, that's referring to. That is that is a separate fund from the other. Uh, pot of money that we are focused on, which is for social equity programming that we we intend to launch next year. Um, so the two hundred million dollars that was announced by the governor at the beginning of this year, you know, that is being privately raised outside of you know um, anything to do with MSOs or ROs. So you know, onto this twenty million dollar number, you know, first and foremost, um, I don't know anything about twenty million dollars. This is a decision that the cannabis control board will make. They ultimately decide when our 10 ROs, our medical cannabis providers, who, you know, many of them are the biggest cannabis companies in the country, when they, the, 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 the board will decide when they transition into the adult use market and how they, that transition will look. And, you know, the, the fee will be negotiated at that level. Obviously, we'll have input on it, but, you know, this is a decision that has not been made yet. Um, so there, there is no $20 million that any large MSO outside of New York will have to pay to access our market. The ROs who are, you know, going to be entering the adult use market with advantages like vertical integration will be paying a transition fee. Um, I don't know what that number is yet, but I also want to be clear on, on, on one thing. The social equity program that New York's going to be building out is not contingent upon these fees. We will have a social equity program, a well-funded social equity program with, with or without those fees. <laughs> There's no world in which we, we launch our legal industry based around whether or not these larger cannabis companies are going to pay a certain amount of money to, to transition over from, from medical. And it, it's untenable. I wouldn't be able to, to build out and plan a program now if that was the case. And so especially, you know, talking about just the size of the, the amount of money that we need for a social equity program, you know, this is a state that just passed a $220 billion annual budget. We will proceed with a social equity plan and a program 
with or without that fee. Any concerns that you need the scale that the MSOs can bring to the table in, in order to help drive down the prices of the, the product so that when an everyday consumer is making their decision that the price is somewhat comparable between the, the traditional market and then the legal market? No. What about the experience that they bring in terms of managing the, the metric software? And um, like there is a definite skill set associated with cultivating high quality cannabis. But there's a whole nother skill set associated with putting in place systems that provide optimal functionality for these organizations. So that experience that they've had managing metric and all those kind of nuances associated with the business, is there an advantage that that could potentially bring? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. I, so just to be clear, the MSOs will absolutely welcome to apply for licensing yeah. when it opens up next year. We're, there's, there's absolutely no universe in which New York is going to be blocking this opportunity from large-scale operators. They will have to you know, adapt their, their business models to whatever the regulatory environment that we end up creating here in New York. Uh, but we welcome that expertise. We welcome um, experienced operators to come here and provide great product to New Yorkers. That, that absolutely um, is a priority for us. Um, I will say that I think that the cannabis industry is hard. I know a lot of operators in it. You know, I, I, I've mostly just been a CBD farmer, you know, managing greenhouses and, you know, 10, 20 acre farms. Uh, but I've spent time out in Colorado and California visiting these facilities and, and seeing how these operations are run. And I've seen $10 million grows in, in Colorado being managed by one 21-year-old kid <laughs> you know, high school degree. I've seen process. <laughs> I've seen processing facilities also. You know, with millions of dollars of equipment, with someone with, with basically a chemistry high a high school understanding of chemistry. Um, and so, I'm not going to you know sit here and pretend that this is rocket science. I think that there are people in the cannabis industry across this country that would like the rest of us to believe that this is an impossible thing to do without them, but it's not. <laughs> it isn't. Um, but again, like we're not blocking opportunity for many of those for any of those MSOs to to come to New York. And build uh, uh, their their businesses out here. You know, our, we love great weed in New York, and if you can grow it, um, you're going to succeed here. So, I guess now the most important question is: Is there a date in mind, or most more importantly, will I be able to buy product here in New York before the end of the year? Man, I I, I go to sleep at night and I dream about that. <laughs> I really hope. That, man. <laughs> I, I am, I'm hopeful that we will have at least uh, a couple stores with products on the shelves by the end of this year. Um, if not, you know, we'll have a lot, you know, a, do a dozen, a couple dozen, you know, up to 50, hopefully the first half, um, the first quarter of next year. Um, but yeah, the, the, the goal, the, the North Star is uh, the first legal sale of uh, adult use cannabis happening uh, by the end of this year. Um, what percentage chance would you say that happens? It's a coin toss. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take 50%. So, Damien, your background is really impressive. The third generation farmer, background in international development. When you took the job, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Oh, man. I haven't had a chance to make the mistakes yet, but they're coming. <laughs> <laughs> I think one thing that I'm, I'm going to be really proud of, and, and we're, we're going to be announcing this as soon, is uh, we, we do plan on prioritizing those New Yorkers or, or, or working with those New Yorkers who have illicit, illicit cannabis experience to help them learn compliance issues, help them transition into the legal market. Um, that, that is something that is uh, near and dear to me. Uh, and it's something that um, you know, we have a, a lot of people working on right now to, to, to roll out in the next month or so. We have such a talented and experienced legacy market here in the state of New York, you know, people that have much like California, honestly, like, you know, upstate, we've got families that have been growing weed in, you know, the Finger Lakes, Rochester, outside Buffalo for, for generations. I, I personally know uh, a guy in, in the South Bronx who grows uh, the best cannabis I've ever smoked. And he was, he's doing it in, you know, 5,000 square foot basement in the Bronx. Like we have such talented logistics managers to, that, are, that are essentially running what is already a billion, multi-billion dollar industry in the state. And the huge priority of mine is figuring out how to bring those guys um, and women over to the legal, this legal opportunity. And so I haven't made any huge mistakes yet, but I will. Um, but that is something that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that you know we've got buy-in um, within the agency to 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 start rolling out. 
20 years from now, we will look back and say, that was barbaric. I can't believe we did that in the cannabis industry. What is that? Limited licensing. I think limited licensing models, markets are, are, are really are kind of deeply un- un-American to me. Uh, I think that home grow should be a right for, for all Americans once we've got federal legalization. And uh, I think everyone um, who wants to start a cannabis business 20 years from now, 10 years from now, five years from now, and it's legal, they should be allowed to. Um, there shouldn't be these you know, fees that keep people out. There shouldn't be these lobbyists they need to hire just to access uh, a legal industry. It's a, it's a mildly psychoactive plant that a lot of people love in a lot of these limited licensing states, you know, states where I have a lot of friends that are very frustrated. They are very passionate about the plant and they just have nowhere to go with that enthusiasm. It upsets me a lot. And I think 20 years from now, we're going to look back and, and like think that was insane. Like, I can't believe we told people they couldn't do something that we legalized, especially people that, you know, had all this passion and insight and enthusiasm and love for that we kept them from that opportunity. And so I hope to not see many more limited licensing markets, legal markets launched, but I assume there will be a, a few. I just um, hope that it isn't the reality a generation from now. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? It's will make money. <laughs> uh, honestly, I think, I think that is something that is just like, it's, I don't know why we don't talk about that more. Pub- I mean, we do. I mean, increasingly people are talking about that pretty publicly about how much money they're losing. But there's this, you know, kind of speculative lottery driven, you know, I just got to win a license and then a cha-ching, my pro former tells me I'm a millionaire next year. It is so damaging to entrepreneurs, to the sector, to consumers, to everyone to build up that myth that this is uh, some sort of ticket to financial freedom. It is one of the toughest businesses you can get into. I mean, I know I'm preaching in the choir on this, but I spent the last few years talking to would-be can- like people who want to be cannabis entrepreneurs in Brooklyn, in the South Bronx, Upper Manhattan. And you know, they were all talking to me about the opportunity in terms of like, if I can only get this license, I can only get this license. And I, it pains me to be the person to kill their dreams right before the legal industry is launched. But there is definitely a, a reality setting narrative we need to push out there that, you know, if you open up the books for some of these super popular brands and operators out in California, Colorado, you're not, you're going to see a lot of red ink. And it's obviously not the fault of the operators. There's so many other issues that the industry has in, in terms of 280E and just compliance requirements. But it's such a brutal industry. And I, and I hope we're more honest you know, in our conversations with um, aspiring entrepreneurs about uh, the nature of the opportunity. Because, and, and I'll add to that and say that like, as, as someone who you know, cultivated cannabis, I don't want to do that again. It wasn't for me. I, I, love, I loved growing weed. Uh, growing CBD, but you know, it didn't. It was a very difficult life. Like I was taking the train upstate to my farm, and then you know, I was out my farm till eight o'clock, and then trying to get home. It, it it's an isolating life, you know, managing to grow out in the middle of nowhere. It's it's a lonely life. It's it's difficult. It's it, and so being more honest about the opportunity, uh, I think, is going to ultimately be a net positive for the industry going forward. And that you know, people who are truly passionate, truly committed to staying in this for the long haul, not just to flip a license or sell it or, or one up some, some other business to, to actually build a brand and build a business and commit to it over the long term. I think that will encourage those folks to, to join the industry if we're just more honest about the, the nature of the opportunity. That's really well said. One of my favorite quotes that I've heard on the podcast is that an executive said that winning the license is the easiest thing about not operating in cannabis. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then once you win it, the nightmare begins, right? Yeah, now the real struggle happens. All right, Dave, before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Do it because you love it, not because it's profit, not because not you're going to make money off of it. I mean, that's ultimately uh, what I'd say is I went into the cannabis space to learn primarily because I wanted to to eventually, you know, work with the plant in terms of economic development and policy and social equity. And I went into it with that intention because I love that, that intersection of economic development and, and cannabis and criminal justice reform. But I, I wasn't in love with building a business and building a brand and, and generating uh, consistent sales and stuff like that. And so it wasn't for me. And so I really feel like, you know, the folks who are, are looking at this space, like 
if you love cannabis and you really love it, I mean, there's going to be a way for you to participate in it. Just don't jump into it because it's, you know, for lack of a better word, it's like the, the sexy new industry. Oh, prediction time. Five years from now, what does success look like for you with, in regards to the New York market? Five years from now, man, uh, first, it looks like, you know, an industry that is uh, without compare in any other legal state. I think that what we want to build here ultimately um, is something that you can't find elsewhere. And so, you know, an example of that is Chinatown, right? Chinatown is, you know, hundreds of years old. It's a, it's a staple of Manhattan. It's a, it's a, an incredibly vibrant community that has been there for many generations. Uh, and so often I think about what a dispensary looks like in Chinatown, uh, that is owned by, you know, a Chinese American family that's been there for generations. And so, you know, ultimately, you know, we're looking at a dispensary that reflects those East Asian cultural traditions that, that also have, you know, some elements of cannabis, you know, intertwined with that history and that they, you know, are able to tell that cultural story that, that of their family and of their, of their traditions and of their people through that dispensary, through cannabis. Now, all of a sudden, we've got people from all over the country, East Asian, you know, everyone coming to Chinatown to see what cannabis looks like. Uh, in, in, in that community, and even you know, potentially people from East Asia coming out here and learning about cannabis uh, and, and and what it means to to, to that community in, in Chinatown. And I really feel like that's how we build. Um, you know, that's that's the industry that New York kind of deserves. You know, this is one of the most culturally diverse cities in the world in a legal industry that you know incorporates our family farms upstate, growing fireweed, selling it in you know retail stores that are owned and operated by, you know, people from that community, from that neighborhood who are telling their story through their brand. That's, you know, ultimately how we build the most inclusive uh, and, you know, diverse and, and successful cannabis industry in the country. Uh, I mean, I agree with everything Damien said. I'm going to take a little different. I think success for New York is going to um, look like any other industry that's been um, a staple uh, in New York or globally, if you will. I think at the end of the day, New York has always been like the capital of the world, if you will. And cannabis, I don't think will be any different. And so success will be globalized cannabis brands that were kind of founded and developed in that melting pot that is Manhattan and is New York. And I think that's what success will be like, is that a free market that provides the opportunity for people from any walk of life to be able to start either a brand or a grow or any portion of the, the cannabis supply chain and be able to take it globally. What do you Absolutely. I, I fully agree with that. And you know, I'll just add to that and say that like what we're creating here in New York is not some sort of exclusive New York only market. We're creating a competitive landscape where people can compete fairly and on a level playing field so that the best brands, the best cannabis wins. And I don't think that, you know, with the exception of maybe, you know, the illicit, the legacy market in California, that that's really happened nationwide. Uh, we haven't seen that, you know, granular level of competition in the legal market that, that really forces companies to innovate, uh, to build new ways of consuming cannabis, to build new products and, and grow new strains. And so I fully agree. I think that, you know, what, the, the market that's going to you know mature here is going to it's going to influence what London looks like. It's going to influence what Berlin looks like. Yep. And uh, exactly, we just got to make sure that the brands that do win, the, the companies that do win here, they they earned that. You know what I mean? They fought for that. They 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 innovated. They pivoted. They 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 did everything they could, and and that's why they succeeded. Not because they had the biggest checkbook, but because they had the best ideas. And that's that's all we're trying to do in New York. I love that. And it's so exciting to hear that and to watch it unfold. Because I, I think that's the most interesting part is that we're going to get a live look at one of the best case studies of all time and, and watch how your team unrolls it out and, and, and hopefully goes away with a lot of these lazy stigma aspects that continue to play the industry. And one of the, the things that concerns me most, though, would be uh, the pricing standpoint. I think as the market comes online, my biggest fear is that some of the older generation continues to hesitate with um, buying the products and maybe they're not the, the the more pricing issues, but that's my biggest internal worry is that from a pricing standpoint that the it might push other people to outside market, but I guess we'll see as it unfolds. But I, Damon, I tip my hat to you. I think what your team is doing 
Um, we've had a lot of people come on and talk about New York specifically as the market to to aspire to to become and ones that they look to as doing it the right way and backing it up with action. So I got to tip my hat to you there. So for the listeners that want to get in touch, they want to learn more about New York cannabis and they likely want to apply for jobs, where can they find you? Cannabis.ny.gov. All of our information is up there. Subscribe to our you know, email updates. Uh, tap in, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're going to be announcing a lot, a lot of stuff, including the regulations over the next few months. And you really want to see on top of that, we're going to have a very intense and collaborative public comment period where you know once you know the world can see the regulations for what the industry that we want to build, they can actually you know write to us and suggest. Uh, changes that they that they recommend. We're we're gonna we're gonna listen to stakeholder input, including MSOs, including businesses outside of New York. Um, and so you know, tap in on our website uh, to stay to stay uh, on top of that. And thank you guys for having me. Yeah, appreciate it. this was fun. Looking forward to doing this again and seeing uh, how the markets kind of unfold it. Yeah, check in again in a year. It could be uh, either the greatest thing ever or just a complete nightmare. Uh, no, probably the greatest thing ever. Though. It's gonna thrive. <laughs> it's gonna thrive. It's it's gonna dominate. Thanks so much for taking the time. Yep. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.